Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. And this month, we are reading 10 Billion Days and 100 Billion Nights by Ryu Mitsusei. I was just going to say the title, I just love it so much. <laughs> I'm so, I was so glad to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> this is, um, this is cool. This is a different and interesting book. Um, so a little bit about us, uh, if this is your first time here, uh, at Spectology, every month we pick a book, we read it and we talk about it. We do that over two episodes. So this is our spoiler free pre-read episode. Uh, we'll be talking about the book the author, the kind of context surrounding the book, what type of genre is it? Um, in this episode, we'll probably be talking a lot about like Japanese literature and Japanese science fiction because 10 billion days and 100 billion nights is one of the classics of modern Japanese science fiction. Um, so I'm really excited to read it. I've never read any Japanese science fiction. I've watched like anime and stuff like that. Uh, that's it. But this was um, this was Matt's idea. This book, and then later on in the month, uh, in the you know at the end of January, we will post an episode where we have read the book and we'll discuss it like really in depth. Um, and you know like talk about the themes and the characters, that kind of thing. Uh, really get into it. But for right now, we're just sort of you know giving you what you might want to know about the book before you read it, and you know hopefully convincing you to read it along with us. Um, so Matt, like, why did you, why did you pick this book? This, this was like your pick very much. It was, um, great question. Um, number one, I've read it and I loved it and I really was eager to make Adrian read it and have (laughs) have an excuse to talk to Adrian about this book. So that's number one. Number two, I think uh, one of my goals for this podcast is to highlight a really diverse selection of books and diverse, you know, across a lot of different axes, um, so for me, getting a chance to uh, really dig into something that is outside of the Anglosphere, um, that is from a country with its own like very important and very long uh, literary tradition, um, and um, you know, from you know a, a, an author who you know, despite many similarities with other authors we've read, you know, demographically speaking, also has you know, a lot of differences, demographically speaking. So I think, you know, all of those reasons, it's, it's, a, it's a different perspective. It's a different kind of take on some big sci-fi ideas. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, two more reasons. I have a lot of reasons for, for picking <laughs> this. <laughs> um, there's a lot of themes in this that play really interestingly with themes that we've already discussed on the pod with other books. Yeah. Uh, rel- religion, for example, a lot of stuff to talk about with religion evolution, the nature of evolution, the nature of humanity and its evolution, um, the nature of human being itself. What is a person? What is the purpose of a person? Um, these kinds of interesting, big moral questions and, uh, the sweep of history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is some of the other books that we've talked about have dealt with this more than others, but, but this is definitely a, a large scale narrative, uh, in a yeah. way that's really fun. And the final reason this book has been very influential. A lot of the ways that it's been influential, uh, have been behind the scenes, but nonetheless, it's had a big impact on, uh, a lot of other authors who have written a lot of other texts that have, um, become the bases for a lot of the popular tropes that, that we know and love. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as an example, um, uh, Mitsu Seiryu, the author of this book, uh, was a, a very early member of a very influential 
um, society of Japanese science fiction authors. Um, and he and all of those other early members of that society were really, their work was really influential on people like Mobius, um, who himself was very influential on all of American science fiction after Mm -hmm. that. Mobius, of course, is not an American, he's he's French, but, or actually, is he French or Belgian? Yeah, he's French, he's French. Yeah, he's French. But um, nonetheless, you know, he's enormously influential and, and sort of through that vector, you know, Mitsuru has been very influential on a lot mm-hmm. of post, post-Mobius science fiction and also through the vector of anime. Um, a lot of big anime like um, Akira yeah. definitely sh- shows the influence of this. Right. Akira, um, other anime Neon, well. Neon Genesis Evangelion, like there's a, there's a whole list of anime that I was thinking of while reading this being like, oh, mm-hmm. ding that trope, ding that trope, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I also uh, think um when you you know you mentioned the like historical sweep of it. So I'm I am, you know, not even a third of the way through the novel, but you know, in what I've read so far, I was thinking how, you know, like the last couple of novels we've read have dealt with the theme of history in some way and children of time, it was in this sort of like, you know, science fiction, space opera kind of like long epic way. And then in Rupetta it was this very um academic historiography what is history even what are the stories we tell kind of way uh and this book so far seems to be kind of like a weird you know not weird like weird in a good way like a like an interesting combination of like you know i was almost thinking of it like what genre would i call it it's like you know okay so there's some space opera elements but it's almost like hard science fantasy somehow like somehow Mm -hmm. blends Mm -hmm. this like science fantasy element and like hard sci-fi element into a thing that I haven't read before. So to, you know, to all of your points, like it definitely, all of that rings really true to me so far. And it's really, I'd say the the other interesting thing to me, so it was published originally in 67, uh, revised and republished in 73. It was only published in English, I think in 2011 or something like that. But I, um, mm-hmm. That's like, right. have definitely, like there's an element of, you know, when I go back and read American novels from the late sixties and early seventies, you know, which we haven't done so far on this podcast, you know, we haven't read Asimov or Heinlein or any of those guys at all on this podcast. Um, but like, there's often ver- something very like stilted about their language and their writing. Whereas this feels like modern and fresh in a way, like it feels mm. like also maybe more literary than a lot of that kind of like mo- classic English science fiction. Um, so it's really, I've really been enjoying it as sort of almost like a, you know, like its own kind of alternate history of like what Anglo science fiction couldn't be or could have been, but wasn't, you know, and it's like, oh, well, there's this other, you know, science fiction tradition that, you know, is different in a lot of ways. And like, sure, they, they have intersected, but they've intersected a lot less than, you know, British and American science fiction have because, we could just read each other's science fiction really easily. Whereas like we couldn't with Japanese science fiction. Yeah. That's actually something that I wanted to bring up in the themes section. So we'll get back to this, but just to, to, to mention it first, um, the back and forth, the cultural back and forth Mm -hmm. that in uh, that a lot, that is always present, but that a lot of the time is sort of hidden because it's too obvious. It's too much the water that we, the fish are swimming in for Mm -hmm. us to see it. But when you look at, other literary traditions sometimes you can see things in your own literary tradition that are that are more obvious just because you're looking out the window instead of looking in the room yeah and so in the case of looking at this you know exemplar of japanese science fiction we can actually see more obviously 
the back and forth across cultures that has built up um, mm-hmm. this this story and that also builds up other sci-fi stories. We'll talk about that more later. Mm-hmm. So uh, do you want to get into the book facts? Book facts. Adrian already mentioned, published originally <laughs> in 1967 in Japan and then revised um, uh, six years later. It's interesting to me. One of the reasons we're talking about this book is because it was finally translated into English into 2011. Mm-hmm. This is a book that in 2006, in a poll of Japanese science fiction fans, was voted the best and most influential Japanese science fiction novel ever. It is a cornerstone of Japanese modern science fiction. And yet, it wasn't translated into English until at all until 2011. It's very interesting. And that actually is right. very representative, I think. And it's worth noting, too, that Ryu Mitsuse has... Uh, written a number of novels. I mean, he oh, has yeah. written. He is dead now. He died in 1999. But over his, you know, life and career, he wrote uh, some. I, I I didn't do a count, but like 30 or 40 science fiction novels. Um, and this is the one that has been translated into English. Um, mm-hmm. And in addition to that, prolific short story author, prolific manga author. I it's not prolific manga author, but had like one very influential work of manga, which is the Japanese like comic book style for those who don't know. Um, also, I guess I should say early on here, I don't speak Japanese at all so i will be using very like bastardized american pronunciations of all of these words whenever we talk about japanese words oh yeah apologies me, but yeah. like you know that's the best i can do <laughs> yeah no no worries at all uh for me and and for my part i speak bad japanese um <laughs> i have been to japan a number of times my brother lives there my sister-in-law is japanese but i speak very poor japanese and uh you know i'm gonna try my best to be sort of accurate and and respectful and i i might screw up and please let me know if i do but i'm just gonna do my best and uh um yeah so that was you know i thought that was it, like you're right there that the 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 fact that this has only recently been published into english is really kind of interesting especially because his um he had a short story that was, you know, from what I can tell, was the first Japanese science fiction short story to get translated into English. Um, this happened in the early 70s. And from again, from what I can tell, looks like part of the reason that the book got revised and republished again later. Um, like he had some sort of like kind of revival of, of his own career in the like early 70s is is what it looked like um a lot of this is hard to do much research on because there's not a lot of english language information so it feels like putting together pieces from different you know one thing will mention this piece over here another thing will mention this piece over here and is trying to piece together like what actually happened uh, in his career yeah from what i can tell actually it's not his career that underwent a revival so much as it's japanese science fiction itself that Mm, underwent mm. a kind of explosion in 1973 uh, an enormously influential in japan book was published called japan sinks japan sinks was really the first blockbuster mass market science fiction novel in japan in in like modern japan Mm. Uh, it's the story of um japan being suddenly beset by this like Trife- not trifecta, but a bunch of different natural, natural disasters, disasters all yeah. at once. And uh, and it actually sinks. And sort of the remaining Japanese people have to deal with this post-apocalyptic situation. It's an, been an enormously influential book. Um, it's referenced. It's been made into multiple movies. It's been 
like referred to by a lot of other subsequent Japanese science fiction, and it sparked this boom in mm-hmm. the in the pop in popular Japanese interest. In Interesting. That's very cool. That's very cool. Um, so I guess just a little bit more about this book. Uh, it's about three hundred pages long, so it's relatively short. Actually, I feel like it's it's a pretty easy read too in a lot of ways. Um, I feel like not all the books we read are necessarily easy reads. This has been really really like fun and interesting. Um, and then uh, I guess too, uh, this is a good question for you. If there are any particular like content warnings about the book, like stuff readers might want to know going into it, I don't have yeah. anything yet. But yeah, um, it does feature some um, violence. Definitely, mm-hmm. I think the biggest content warning has to do with religion. Um, I would say that if you have strong religious beliefs, uh, whether they be Christian or Buddhist or Hindi, you might be offended potentially by some of the treatment of, of those religions. Um, I think you mean Hindu, right? Uh, possibly. <laughs> Hindi is a language, I believe. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Whatever the proper term for that. But um, there's a lot of fictional treatment of uh, major religious figures in this book. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and if you think that now I, I would say it's not done in a way that's intended to demean them, but nonetheless, it's very unorthodox and differs greatly from my understanding of what, you know, more canonical representations of these figures would be. Mm-hmm. So if that is something that, you know, you want to know about, then consider yourself, um, forewarned. <laughs> content warned (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) so uh it also you mentioned the the best japanese novel poll in 2006 um you know i guess a little bit more of the kind of stuff we go over um it is a standalone book it does you know genre wise we kind of mentioned this already it's it doesn't fit easily into the usual anglo sci-fi subgenres like I'm having a really like, you know, what I want to do instead is say like, oh, it's kind of like this book and it takes elements of this book and like that kind of thing. You know, essentially it's about religion. It's about history. It's about technology. It's about the like way these things change and interact. And it's also, um, you know, I think, worth mentioning that Ryu Mitsusei was a biology and earth sciences teacher. And so there's... Mm-hmm a lot of science in it. There's a lot of biology in particular, a lot of evolution, a lot of like the way the earth forms. Um, it's, it's cool. It's interesting. Um, you know, you can tell that he was really interested in that kind of stuff. And even, you know, writing from a late sixties, early seventies perspective, he, you know, tells a really compelling story about it. Um, Mitsuse himself was born in 1928 in Tokyo. Uh, he lived in Tokyo for a very long time. It sounds like during the war, he his family left to the countryside for a long time before he came back to Tokyo, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, um, so he was evacuated as a middle school student to right. uh, the far north uh, west. Well, not Hokkaido, but Iwate Prefecture, which is in the northwest kind of. Right. And, uh, you know, he died in 1999, but it sounds like he had a very long 
writing career. Like, like you look at his list of books and, you know, every couple of years from the like early seventies until he died, he was publishing novels. Yeah. And like I mentioned, he was also involved in very early and important, um, industry organizations. He was, um, his publisher for a long time was Hakuyama Press, which is sort of one of the, the major, uh, institutions that pushed modern science fiction in Japan, a very influential institution. Mm. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's a whole lot more to say about him that will, you know, we'll get into a lot of this kind of stuff in the post read when we talk about like how this, you know, how his actual work relates to him. Uh, I guess the uh, one big thing is, uh, so the, I mentioned the short story, which was published in English that is called sunset 2217 AD and was published, I think in one of Frederick Pohl's like best science fiction of the year anthologies, which were at the time, the big, like best science fiction anthologies and, um, very influent, like those anthologies are very influential in American science fiction in particular. Uh, and so that was kind of a big deal that he chose this Japanese science fiction story to be translated specifically for his best of. Um, and then uh, the manga Andromeda stories, which I'm pretty sure was published in like 1980 to 1982, um, is a fairly influential work of manga, which is also kind of like a science fiction fantasy blend um, about a like ruling family far away in the Andromeda galaxy that has to you know kind of like flee a lot of disaster and stuff and that is um that's something that i've heard of i've never read it myself but i actually didn't know that like the because i've i've heard of this novel before too i didn't realize they were the same author um but i think that that is the kind of like another like very early stage manga that set a lot of the like tropes in motion that like a lot of manga has now from from my very poor understanding of the I history think, of I, manga yeah as far as i'm aware that's true um there's other links in the evolutionary chain so to speak but this is mm -hmm. definitely one of them there's a couple of other 1960s influential 1960s sort of sweep of history sci-fi novels in japan that that are also relevant mm -hmm. um i'll just mention uh briefly uh two uh, there's At the End of the Endless Stream by um, Sakyo Komatsu, or Komatsu Sakyo, I guess. Um, this is like a, a sort of, I have not read this, but I am. it, it came out just one year before um, uh, Mitsusei's book. And uh, it's also the story of this like very long sweep of history sci-fi involving traveling mm -hmm. through time and space and very huge scale thing. And then there's another book called The Day of Resurrection by the same guy three years earlier, um, 1964. And uh, that's another sort of big disaster novel, big sweep, but not as much as a sweep of time, but it's like a, a post-apocalyptic novel. These were all very, very influential, especially in the sort of disaster post-apocalyptic fiction space. Because mm -hmm. um, they come out, if you think about it, they come out really early in the in the mid-60s. Um, right. Well, you know, I think that, you know, and again, this is something that we'll get into here, but Japan has like a long history as well as at that point, a very recent history of very real apocalypses, um, both man-made and natural. Um, and, you know, 
I, I, I think that like, I don't know, in a lot of ways, like a lot of the Japanese science fiction that I have interacted with has largely been anime, um, and has largely involved giant, like disasters, whether natural man-made or some combination of those two. Uh, so it makes sense to me that like they would, you know, kind of like explore these works very early on, like even earlier than us, the, in the U S in some ways. Totally. Yeah. And if you think about it, it's so all totally true, I think. And if you think about the authors of these works, a guy like Mitsuseru, I mean, he was evacuated to Iwate Prefecture, but he wasn't evacuated until June of 1945. Mm -hmm. So he was in Tokyo for most of the war mm -hmm. and he saw Tokyo bombed. He saw the devastation that that war, you know, wrecked on his country, the land around him. Mm -hmm. Um, as did everyone of his generation. There was nowhere in Japan that didn't see devastation during the war. Um, and then after the war, the rebuilding. So all of the concern with post-apocalyptic scenarios, I think was, was somewhat different for, for the people that lived through that. Um, right. Well, in America, science fiction, it's a lot of what if. It's like, what if the bombs fall? Uh, whereas in Japanese science fiction, it's like, well, they have. And as in, you know, and in addition to that, there is also a long history of tsunami, of earthquakes, of like things falling mm -hmm. apart and having to rebuild. So, you know, I think it's more than just like, oh, we dropped the bomb on them twice. It's also like that is in the ether in a way that it's not necessarily in like as young a country as America and as stable countries, especially as the East Coast is where like those kind of natural disasters don't happen in the same way that they do in the Pacific. Yeah. Very true. So I think that's actually a, a one place where we can begin to see some of this sort of kind of really cool thing that we get when we, you know, push ourselves to like investigate some science fiction from a place or from a person that might seem very, you know, out there or different or kind of, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, a lot of people when I've told them about this book, not Adrian, of course, but a lot of a lot of people when I've told them about this book, they're like, oh, that sounds weird. Yeah, <laughs> you know, well, that's no, that different. was my response but, at first, actually. Like I, I so I, I told you this off mic, but I already owned this book when you mentioned wanting to read it, read it. And that was because I had picked it up, having heard about it. I think not too soon after it had been published, like Reddit started talking about it a lot. Mm -hmm. I picked it up and I was like, this is weird. I don't really know what I'm reading. And, you know, mm -hmm. I never ended up finishing it. Um, part yeah. of that was that the first chapter is not indicative of the book as a whole, which is maybe worth mentioning for our readers, mm. like read more than the first chapter, read at least the first two, because it turns into more of a story than it is in the first chapter. Mm. Um, the first chapter is a little bit textbooky <laughs> and then it turns into like what the story is going to be. Um, you know, and beyond that though, the, it was just very different like at the time I picked it up than the stuff that I was used to reading and this is both in terms of subject but I think also like kind of mentioning here you know it's part of a different literary tradition and one of the things that we you know in terms of just being the air or the water is the way stories work we expect stories mm. to work a certain way and like we don't even know to what degree we expect stories to work in that way and you know mm -hmm. I, I've read a lot of you know books outside of the American tradition now. And yeah, the stories don't always work in the same way. Sometimes they don't look like what we would consider a novel, um, but they are still. <laughs> and, you know, mm -hmm. I think I think this is this falls into that a little bit. Um, so I just to say that, like, I actually did have this kind of like journey of like, I did think it was weird at first, but also now I'm reading it. I'm like, oh, well, it, it it's weird in that it's different from my general experience. Uh, but there's a lot to learn there.
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, like, like you're just saying, you, you, it's a, it's a, you know, it's an opportunity to see things really differently. Uh, and you can almost feel your brain being exercised in, in so doing, I think, I mean, I get that feeling. That's Mm -hmm. a feeling that I really like, and I sort of strive to find it. Um, it's like, you know, if the purpose of, if one of the purposes and one of the things in science fiction can do is get us to think of new things, it's like a, a, a machine. Science fiction story is a machine for um, planting new ideas in your mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If that's one of the things that it is, well, this is that, like, definitely. Very much so. Very much so. Um, and, you know, I think, too, it can be useful and interesting to think about the ways in which, like, you know, even what with its differences, like, where do you relate to it? too like for me that's often how i do this kind of thing is it's like oh what's the thing that i actually is familiar to me because if that's an anchor then i can you know kind of like swim back to it more easily when i'm when i'm stuck maybe in some of those parts that are like less you know uh less in my own experience it just makes it a little bit easier to get into to the mindset and, and i think learn better and you know definitely when i was thinking about the like natural disaster element of of this, you know, and I'm going to, you know, like spectology bingo, like, you know, the, the middle Alaska <laughs> section is going to get checked off here. Uh, you know, growing up in Alaska, I also lived through a bunch of natural disasters. Um, and it was actually, uh, this is going to go way off topic here, but we, um, anyone who sees our Twitter account or, you know, follows Twitter generally will probably know that, um, a couple, like a week ago, a, uh, one of the power plants in New York city had like a massive failure. And there was a, you know, essentially like a giant green light that lit up all of the like New York city sky. Um, and I did not know that. That's actually really cool. It was super cool. Probably Uh, not cool for you, but well, the power plants a mile from my house and think of it like this lit up the whole New York city sky. Wow. Um, it at my house was like, the apartment was glowing green inside because of how bright this like trans, you know, some trans, I don't even, I don't even know what, like a lot of energy got released really quickly. And it was essentially like an arc welder, the power of like a 10,000 or maybe a thousand like homes. Um, so it was this like huge, like release of energy that lasted about three minutes. Um, During the time of its release, it was hotter than the sun and brighter than the sun, obviously like less total output than the sun, but like where it was, it was just like this huge release of energy. Um, And what it meant was because it was a cloudy night, just like the sky was glowing bright green and flickering bright green. Uh, So I looked out and my very first thought was like, Oh fuck, the aliens are here. Um, as soon as I had that thought, I was like, well, that's not what's going on, but what is going on? Um, and, <laughs> and it, you know, it's funny cause I was here with my roommate who, who Matt also knows. And, um, without even knowing it, I like went outside, put on my shoes and then came back inside to like talk with him and realized that I had this thing of like, Oh, I've just prepared for this my whole life. Like I grew up and I lived through earthquakes and I lived through, volcanoes and it reminded me a lot of living through a volcano where like the whole sky changes color and shit starts falling from the sky and it's like this apocalyptic Mm. kind of thing um and it you know it's like oh right you know like and that to me has been a little bit of this anchor into this book even though it's much less about natural disasters but this feeling of like oh yeah that's right that kind of mindset of like you know out here it can often feel like the earth is solid 
but growing up in a place where there are earthquakes and volcanoes and mudslides, you know that the earth isn't solid. The earth is like a liquid and it moves. (laughs) Uh, You know, there's, there's an element of that in a lot of the Japanese science fiction that I have, you know, engaged with. Yeah, not to. That was so you know, super off topic, you know. Just well, like yeah, not therapy not to continue- time for me apparently. <laughs> well, but like not to continue that too much, but like I, I, I know exactly what you mean. I grew up in California. Yeah, and I, yeah. I have many, many earthquake memories. Um, some of them very big, and you know, from an early age, I think it wasn't like a possibility. It was like, oh, that had it already happens. happened. Yeah, and like, what did we do that time? And like the other time, and you know. And I actually, I think one of the interesting things about it is that there's kind of, there's kind of two ways in my head, at least, I don't know if this is true for other people, but there's two ways to experience a giant disaster. One is where you are actually affected and it like hurts you. Right. And and you have to then, and then the primary thing about it is the, is the hurt that it caused you. Mm -hmm. And the other way to experience it is that it didn't actually hurt you. And, And that, and that's like a weird thing, but it actually is true. Most people who live through a disaster because they lived through it probably weren't hurt that that badly right like directly maybe indirectly but it depends on the kind of disaster but i think definitely i i get what you're saying yeah i mean yeah i'm maybe i'm putting it in a sort of insensitive way but but i think what i mean literally is you know if you take the 1994 earthquake yep um you know uh, a lot of people died but most people not only didn't die but weren't even injured we're fine yeah. And, and that's an odd thing or, or like a, a hurricane Sandy, maybe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to certainly many up. people were killed, but like, you know, but like it, 60 it, people were killed in a metro area of like 20 million. Exactly. Exactly. And so there's these very different kinds of experience you can have with it. And, and, um, I think both of us have read the, the Ben Lerner book. Um, yes. Uh, 10.04. Yeah. 10.04. Um, you know, and, and, you know, other things you were actually there, of course, but I wasn't there, but I, you know, mm-hmm. reading, reading the book, I, I sort of was thinking about that, the experience of the, the, the experience of not being hurt and, and right. of sort of experiencing it, it as this just sort of incredible, huge event. Right. That doesn't. Well, yeah. No, I, I was to add on to that, you know, and, and again, like, you know, at the risk of being insensitive while at the same time, like I've lived through this shit. So I'm being insensitive for myself. So I'm a little bit okay with it. But like, <laughs> like there's this element of living through a natural disaster where it causes an immediate like community and connection with the people around you. Mm-hmm. And it is incredible. And in fact, can be kind of fun after the fact. And this is something mm-hmm. we like, don't talk a lot about with them, but like Sandy was scary and exciting. Like I, I lived through Sandy. It was incredibly exciting and like, mm. it was scary and it was dangerous. And I was outside during yeah. part of it and I should not have been. And I was terrified for the part, some of it, but also it was like a week of New York coming together in a way that New York generally doesn't, um, you know, and I remember the same thing again, growing up when earthquakes happened or, you know, another earthquake just happened in Alaska that was really devastating recently, mm-hmm. um, like a few weeks ago. And the stuff that I remember about that is just like, it's scary and then it's over. And then for the majority of people, it's a thing you lived through and you all have that in common. And you have this like thing that brings you together with all the people around you in a way that like it doesn't always. Right. I mean, like take, for instance, even the, the you know, 
the like Con Edison, like electricity plant failure that I'm talking about here. Like, okay, no one died. It sounds like probably no one was injured. I, I kind of doubt that a little bit, but okay. That's what they say. Um, but also like, you know, all of New York lived through it. And because I'm so close to it, I live through it even more. And so it's like even more exciting for me. Like yeah. other people will be like, oh man, you got to see it. You were really there. And it's like, yeah, that feels good in a way. Um, yeah. I think it's Rebecca Solnit actually has a whole book about this, about the like communities that get built mm. around and during and after natural disasters. I, I don't know what it is. My, um, you know, my, my ex always told me to read it and I never did. Um, but, uh, but like, you know, that's true. I, I, again, Sandy, I volunteered, you know, after Sandy helping people clean up in the Rockaways and it was, you know, I, mean, I hate saying this, but it was kind of fun. And like, yeah. you know, some of the way it's fun is that you're giving back to your community. It's like, we would just like go and like show up at people's houses and knock on doors to be like, can we help? Yeah. It was yeah. all through the Occupy Sandy thing. So it was all very grassroots and on the ground and, you know, people needed help and they were so happy to get that help. And it made you yeah. feel good that you could help. Right. But it's also, it's like kind of weird to talk about the way that like, Oh yeah, I felt good because I lived through a natural disaster. I felt good because yeah. I wasn't hurt and other people were, and I could like help them because maybe they weren't hurt physically, but like they're, you know, I went and I cleaned out entire houses that had been like ruined. You know, people's lives are in there. Yeah. Um, and you know, they were happy for that and they also felt good about having lived through it and like being there with their neighbors and their community members. So it's a, um, I, I feel like you bring up a really interesting thing that we don't talk about <laughs> a lot when we talk about <laughs> natural disasters, cause it's weird to talk. It's weird to be like, oh yeah, I really liked living through that volcano. I'm happy I, mean, I did. Yeah. I think of it basically as the same thing that's going on when people watch horror movies. Um, mm -hmm. it, you know, not to not like it's the same kind of thing. Same um, feeling. It's the the way that you know um, if it's if it's not a it's like the Nietzsche line. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's the way in which like things that don't hurt you, like stories that don't hurt, are fun period mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. and if the story's happening to you it's even more fun mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. it's like a weird thing about people and stories anyway yeah no i think it's very true anyway that was again tangential but <laughs> <laughs> interesting yeah all right do you do you want to um talk yeah. about themes yeah, well, one thing, you know, I think it might actually even be worth talking a little bit about here before we talk about themes is just like other similar books. We usually do this at the very end, but I almost kind of feel like, again, going to that point of, you know, what's the anchor that can kind of bring you into this is talking a little bit about like how it's interacted with American, Anglo, etc. Even just European general literature might be interesting as well. It's just like, you know, some of this maybe it didn't actually interact with, but it's like the stuff that I have in mind while I'm reading it uh, might. And then we can get into themes. And I think that might flow a little bit better. What do you think, Matt? Sure. Let's do it. Cool. Um, I think one of the the first two that I had because they're written around the same time, but in America, and I think deal with kind of similar themes. Um, one is Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke, 
um, which is also like kind of a long, really sweeping, like cosmic epic that had, you know, like travels time and space to the like end of time, essentially. Um, and like, as I've been reading this, that's been, that's been coming up for me as like really the only, like American science fiction novel I can think of before the two thousands that like does some of the same kind of literary stuff that this one is doing. Um, and it's a bit of a stretch, but it's like the clo- like I was really like, what can I think of? That's like, you know, in Anglo, I guess not American Arthur C. Clarke was British, but like in Anglo science fiction, like does some of this at that time period. Mm-hmm. And that's the best I could come up with. And the other one is, um, Roger Zelazny's Lord of Light, which I think was published in the 70s, so published a little bit later. Oh, no. So actually, Lord of Light was 67, the same year. Oh, and really? Childhood, Interesting. And Childhood's End was in the early 50s. Yes. Yeah. Childhood's End was was earlier. I didn't know that. Um, so, yeah. So Lord of Light is the other one, which is, you know, an American, like an Anglo version of, and Zelazny is American, was American, um, version of looking at Buddhism as well as these kind of longer time periods Mm -hmm. very different super different from this book but in terms of like you know it's honestly the only other science fiction novel that's explicitly like about buddha and has the buddha as a character um and so it's kind of interesting that those were published the same year (laughs) and you know that i that i can think of yeah i i to me lord of light is one of my all-time favorite sci-fi books yeah i love Uh, it I think, yeah, you like it too, right? It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's one I it's, read as a kid, and it really stuck yeah. with me. Yeah, I, I kind of want to go back and reread it, honestly, because it's been a while, and I wonder what I would think of it now, but it's up there for me in the I all-time. I reread it like five years ago, and it held up, at least at that point, for me. Yeah. I love Zelazny in general, but Lord of Light... Lord of Light is a very special book, I think. It is, as far as I know, out of... You know, because in the 60s, there were a bunch of books that maybe they weren't dealing with the Buddha, but they were heavily influenced by religion oh and yeah the beat generation interest in eastern philosophy and eastern religion mm-hmm. had its impact on like american uh speculative literature a great right. example stranger in a strange land you know that that comes to mind right away mm-hmm. it's another 60s like right well it's like of, a it, combination of like the beats and then also like you know, the Beatles and a lot of the like other kind of like sixties influence on, you know, taking this like Eastern culture, whether it be religion or it be music or it be, you know, like gurus or it be all kind of the above and mixing it together in like a Western consumerist context. Yeah. The fascinating thing of course, is that a sort of analogous process was taking place in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, in Japan, the post-war generation was going through a kind of similar explosion of consumer culture, explosion of educational opportunities, explosion of free time that the American uh, generation of the, at the same time was going through. But of course, their point of reference was different. And so I think yeah. to to somebody like um, Mitsu Seiryu, who, you know, is a little older, he's not, he's, a, he's too old to be, he's not a baby boomer. Right. He's, you know, a generation earlier. He lived through the war, although he was a kid. Um, but nonetheless, you know, he's kind of experiencing as an adult the the ferment of the 60s, which definitely was hitting Japan, too, especially in Tokyo, where he was. Like, mm-hmm. there were riots. There were student demonstrations, take over, like student left-wing organizations trying to take over buildings, worker, uh, organized worker, like, attempts to exert political power. You know, there's a lot going on, especially in 67, 68, 69. 
just like there was in Europe and and lot in all over the world. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that plus this like sudden influx, suddenly a sudden new ability to interact via mass media with all these different cultures that you didn't have before. And, you know, you can talk about that in really specific ways. I mean, like in Japan in the 60s, from the perspective of Mitsuseiryu, like for the first time, Japan was getting decent Japanese translations of English language science fiction. In fact, very specifically, that same publishing house I mentioned, Hakayama, um, they put out what was basically like a, a, it was like the premier Japanese science fiction magazine. And they just kind of copied, um, I think it was Amazing Stories, or if it wasn't Amazing Stories, it was the other major American magazine. They basically just copied them. They printed a lot of the same stories, but translated. And then they interspersed among them stories by Japanese authors. And so, you know, you you would, Japanese people were, for the first time, they were getting, like, decent translations of, like, Edgar Rice Burroughs and, like, the Barsoom stories hmm. or or um, E.E. E. Doc Smith and the Lensman stories. You know, things that were incredibly influential in America a generation earlier, they were getting them. And then they, they got more recent stuff as well. They got more, mm-hmm. you know, up-to-date, up-to-date stuff too. But it was like this, imagine not having any of that and then all of a sudden having it you know that was kind of in the same way that the americans of the beat generation were like all of a sudden having the story of siddhartha you know it's like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the story of siddhartha is 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 as basic as it gets for for a lot of people in other parts of the world but in america it was an explosion right right yeah and that you know that ties in a little bit to something that we talked about maybe in like our third or fourth episode ever, I think the the Sparrow pre-read when we were talking about how, you know, you often in something like Lord of Light get this kind of like, you know, long tradition of like Eastern religion filtered through a very kind of like recent transmission of those, you know, ideas mm-hmm. and thoughts and traditions to like an American audience. Um, and then something, you know, but the same was happening in reverse. And you get some of that in this novel as well as, you know, at the time I was thinking about it in the context of Neon Genesis Evangelion, because that's an anime that I've watched a bunch of times and really like. Um, but, you know, you get the same thing here with like, you know, like Christianity getting filtered through into Japan for, you know, obviously not the first time it came over, you know, I guess in like the 1700s with traders and everything, but really getting that kind of like sense of like, Oh, like, you know, our, ver- you know, what is their version of these things? How do they relate to these stories that, you know, we have had for 2000 years and they have had for a hundred, 200, maybe. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you say that about Christianity, because uh, this is actually a Christianity has a, a much more interesting history in Japan than I think the the general the general view is. Um, it's not the case that Christians didn't exist in Japan from the 1600s to the Meiji Restoration in in, 19, in 1868. In fact, there were a lot of secret Christians. <laughs> right. It's this right. like really interesting secret, especially in southern Japan, further away from the capital, there was this whole kind of hidden influence that Christianity exerted. And of course there were some Europeans that did go to Japan over this period and they did bring totally, new, totally. new Christian tropes. Anyway, I, I don't want to I studied Asia in college <laughs> and I really like talking about it and I don't want to do it too much. <laughs> no, so, I think you on. know 
it's it's good i do i do recognize i am oversimplifying here i my point is less about the history and more like Mm -hmm. some of the cool ways in which like you can see what like zelazny is doing with lord of light yeah in these like japanese works where they're doing a kind of similar thing to what's our sort of like air you know they're like drawing the air (laughs) that we breathe i totally agree yeah Um, and that i really like too um you know i also think it's worth uh the a few other things that this novel has really reminded me of um it was interesting you mentioned mobius was like directly um influenced by this novel i didn't realize that when i wrote down ling call and heavy metal which are yordowowski's and uh, mobius's like different uh oh, what, what's the word like collaboration so mobius mm-hmm. is a is a french comic book artist and comic artist where in france like in Japan, comics like Bon Desine are um, just a lot more. I, I don't even know what the word is. It's like respected and like ubiquitous and like comics are just like kind of a normal medium in a way that like in the US, like comics are largely like superhero comic weeklies, you know, like in France, when I when I was living in France, like, oh, yeah, you buy comic books. And you Mm -hmm. buy them in novel form or you buy them, you know, maybe they're like quarterlies or, you know, and there's like all sorts of different stories. And like, you know, sure, like image comics exist here and you can like read kind of like cool, interesting, you know, literary stories and like the indie comic scene in America. But like there it's just like, you know, you go to any bookstore and there's a giant section for like comic books. Um, And they're not comic books in the way that we think of comics to be more like what we'd call like graphic novels or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, So it's really kind of interesting because i you know i was thinking about kind of the ways in which the like you know manga tradition and the like french comic tradition kind of interact and to hear that you know like i was really thinking of lincoln and heavy metal and these sort of like you know specific kind of like dark fantasy type of works and to hear that that was like actually directly you know related was really cool and then the other things i was thinking of a lot um is this Russian novel called The Master and Margarita. Um, And I thought of this for a few reasons. One is the bit I talked about where, like, you know, like Russia has a very long literary tradition, um, just like Japan has a very long literary tradition um, that is, like, separate from, you know, maybe influenced by, but separate from the European literary traditions. And so, you know, The Master and Margarita is a very famous novel written during Stalinist, I think it's like written from the like 20s to the 30s and published in like the 40s in a very like kind of, you know, stripped down way and then was like, you know, illegally distributed during the 70s and it's or 60s, I think, in its full version and only published in its full version, like relatively recently. Um, but it's a story that has kind of like similar elements in that, like there's a modern story. And then there's also these like historical, just like these kind of chapters that are just about like Jesus in history as like a historical dude that like barely tie in to the like other story. It's just the sort of thing of like, it's willing to just like have a lot of these things kind of interspersed with each other in a way that like almost doesn't feel like a, what we think of as a novel, but is, it's just like a different kind of novel. And I think as I've been reading this, I've been thinking both because there's this, you know, major historical fiction element to 10 billion days and 100 billion nights, but also this kind of like the way in which the different stories interact is has like a different texture than a lot of American novels do. Even if, you know, even American novels that, you know, 
have elements of history and science fiction and fantasy all tied together. Like they tie together in different ways. That's hard to explain mm. <laughs> for me. Yeah. I think using the word texture is really good. That's, that's a lot of what you're getting. I really like the idea of comparing it to a book like Master and Margarita also, because that's a great way for people, if you've heard of that book, to kind of get a sense of what kind of new thinking you might be able to get if you try out a book like this. Mm -hmm. If you've, if you've uh, read Master and Margarita, if you're familiar with it, you might, you, you probably like it because a lot of people like it. And, and a lot of people have enjoyed the experience of going to that and getting that new texture, mm -hmm. that new way of combining the same materials. Um, you can get that from a book like um, 10 Billion Days and 100 Billion Nights also. Yeah. And then the the last thing that I was thinking of, and I'm curious what, you know, I, I've been doing this, but, um, you know, I think David Mitchell, who we've talked about multiple times on this mm -hmm. podcast, Cloud Atlas, uh, maybe specifically Ghost Written, even as much as Cloud Atlas, at least in some of these other, because that takes place largely in Japan. Um, but, you know, obviously, like, he's a British author who has spent a lot of time in Japan, studied Japanese literature, and mm -hmm. has specifically tried to incorporate Japanese, not just, like, tropes, but style and this texture thing that we're talking yeah. about into his you know, English literature novels. Um, and so, you know, I think there's elements of like, if you've read cloud Atlas, which like a lot of people have, and it's a you know, really great movie and everything. Um, at least I think so, but I'll, you know, ride <laughs> or die for the Wachowskis. Um, but like Jupiter sending, I still haven't seen it. You, you have to do neither here nor there is still, I know I do. I missed it in theaters and I was really pissed off and I still haven't seen it. Um, but yeah, but like if you've liked his novels, you know, Bone Clocks, Cloud Atlas, Number Nine Dream, all this stuff, uh, I, I think then, you know, again, it's this kind of tether of like, that's maybe an easier version of like what, for an American audience, for an Anglo audience, for what 10 billion days and 100 billion nights is, is doing. Yeah, I really, I really like that you brought him up. Um, before I saw that you had written him here in our notes, um, I was thinking about bringing him up for the section I want to do on the sort of cultural back and forth because, mm -hmm. you know, Number Nine Dream in particular, well, not a lot of his books, but I wanted to bring up that one. Number Nine Dream is basically David Mitchell writing an American version of a, Jap a, a type of Japanese novel called a light novel. He, and he just writes it in English, but he writes it specifically in an attempt to kind of exactly mimic not only the structure and like type of story, but also the, the cadence and word choice and language and dialogue of, of a Japanese novel of a particular mm -hmm. type. And it's this fascinating exercise. And it's something that authors do all the time, or not all the time, maybe not as successfully all the time, but attempts like that are made all the time to take something from another culture and import it and, and then mm. repackage the import. Um, and that's like a, not just like this weird random thing. It's like a core part of the, of global literature and how it works. Mm. So that, I think that's a great example. And, and, um, well, I think that might be a really good segue into talking about that in particular. Sweet. Yeah. So back and forth, cultural back and forth. So, um, at a high level, you know, we've kind of already mentioned this, but I wanted to use a specific example to really highlight kind of how this process can work. So I was going to talk about Godzilla. Cool. So Godzilla, um, the original Godzilla, Godzilla comes from a movie called Godzilla, um, which was made in the 50s in Japan. 
by um, a Japanese filmmaker who really, you know, from the beginning had a lot of interest in making something that was kind of overtly political and had really deep themes that would send a message. You know, nowadays people think about Godzilla as just like a monster movie, but um, from the beginning there's, and, and many of the subsequent movies maybe were <laughs> right. just monster movies, but the original Godzilla and, and some of the, the sequels and, and successors, um, you know, are interested in something deeper and they want to, and, and they're, you know, it's, it makes sense to think of them as, as not just a, a kaiju movie or a monster movie that involves like, you know, violence and, and titillating fun, but, but as, you know, science fiction art. And mm-hmm. uh, so the original Godzilla, the story of how it was made is really interesting. Um, originally, that filmmaker um, was intending to go to Indonesia to make a political movie about um, Japanese about the Japanese occupation of Indonesia during the war and the impact that it had. And um, that's pretty deep and uh, intense. Uh, and he wasn't actually, he and his crew were not given visas by the Indonesian government because it was too politically sensitive. And so mm. he had to scramble to come up with a new project. And what he came up with was Godzilla. And the reason he came up with it was because he saw an American movie that came out in 1953 called The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Mm-hmm. Now, I was lucky enough to go to a science fiction film festival a few years ago, and I saw that, on a, on that movie on the big screen, and it's awesome. And if you see it, you'll see why, you know, um, he was inspired by that movie to make a movie called Godzilla. Because the movie, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, is just straight up like the story of this ancient, you know, monster that was like frozen in time under the ocean and like humans were foolish enough to wake it up and then it attacked and they had to fight it off. <laughs> it's like, you know, pretty similar. <laughs> right. But what's really interesting is to think about how this works. So so this American movie, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, you know, it's, it's about superficially a very similar story. But um, the message of the American movie, the way that the monster is defeated, it's very, very different. It ends up being in a totally different story because what happens is, the American military uses their best weapons to destroy the beast. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the story of Godzilla, what the story of Godzilla is, it's the story of American military weaponry, i.e. like nukes. They're tested on this Pacific Island and the radiation causes this creature to mutate. Right. And so it's almost like the, the, the same story, but like thematically reversed. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's, it's the super weapons cause the problem instead of solve it. Exactly, exactly. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Because like this is a movie being made in Japan instead of a movie being made in America. And it's a movie <laughs> being made in a Japan that literally, like 1953, when he saw that movie, when it came out, was one year after the American occupation of Japan ended. Mm-hmm. It ended in 52. That's mm-hmm. crazy. You know what I mean? Like during mm-hmm. the American occupation in Japan, the Japanese media was censored by American military figures to prevent anti-American sentiment from spreading. Like an American general like ordered the emperor around and like prevented people from publishing stuff that he didn't like. It was like mm-hmm. this it's like a totally different it's hard to imagine a world where your country is undergoing that sort of thing, but that was that was reality. And so then, you know, he makes this movie Godzilla, which takes a lot of the same plot points and then just like totally reverses the themes. 
that's a lot, I think, a good example of how this kind of process of of back and forth goes. And then, of course, we have to remember, after he made Godzilla, it was a huge global hit. Mm -hmm. And then it was really one of the first movies that announced the arrival of the Japanese film scene. Now, at first, of course, only like, you know, film buffs saw it in America. But eventually, the movie Godzilla was like one of the most influential movies you know, to, uh, you know, in the world, in a, mm. in a certain genre to a huge number of people. Well, wasn't it like recut and re-released in America with like American actors and some of the on the ground yeah. scenes? And it was, it was. And of course there's been a gajillion sequels. It spawned this whole, you know, it spawned this sort of new wave of disaster monster movies. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. as I've mentioned, there were previously, there had already been American movies like this. And King Kong is the big one, right? So King Kong right. is like the the original... The, like, er example yeah. of this, yeah. Right. And King Kong, of course, fascinatingly, was concocted by a Polish, like, a really interesting Polish guy who, like, emigrated to Hollywood and had an incredibly <laughs> interesting life. Um, but I'll just leave him to the side, even though that's a really interesting story. King Kong come up with by this Polish guy who had a lot of adventures in World War I and then moved to Hollywood. King Kong eventually spawns a post-war American monster movie kind of redone, like new version of an American monster mm -hmm. movie that involves the American military, which fucking everybody has already just been a member of. And now they've just like, and acts just after Korea too. The American military saves the day in the end with fancy new weapons. Then a Japanese filmmaker takes that same story remakes it again from another different perspective and then after godzilla becomes this global phenomenon over the next few decades it then percolates out into the rest of the world and the kind of anti-colonial monster movie becomes a thing that mm -hmm. you can find in a lot of other countries and then mm -hmm. americans start making godzilla remakes specifically <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's like this incredible back and forth it just keeps going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth right and well and another whole like kind of like evolutionary you know it's like that's one evolutionary trunk on the evolutionary tree another one like you mentioned is like kaiju and also with kaiju mm -hmm. come like mecha suits right and this whole other kind of you know mm -hmm. largely again japanese mm -hmm. developed and then more recently like pulled over into america pacific rim etc etc mm -hmm. of like you know which is actually, oh, of course, monster. made by a Mexican director. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first one was, but yes, exactly. It's yes, like yes, this sort of like, you know, this spread of ideas is not just like spreads linear, linearly, like bouncing back and right. forth, but also like splits. And you'll have like different kind of versions of that idea, like coming totally. back and forth. I totally. think about it a lot in the, the way that... um I think about this in language in terms of language really often and how like there's the word chef, which means, you know, like the head of kitchen in a kitchen um, or like a cook. Uh, and then there's the word chief, which is literally just like the same word, but borrowed uh, several hundred years earlier and then like gone through linguistics change in like English. But ultimately like chief is closer, like our word chief is closer to the actual meaning of the French word chef, which is just like the head of something, like the guy mm -hmm. in charge, yeah. um, you know, which is why like chef in a French restaurant is usually chef de cuisine. It's like the yeah. guy in charge of the kitchen or, you know, woman obviously, yeah. but you know, the person in charge. Um, you know, and I think the same thing kind of happens here where it's like, you know, it evolves in one direction in Japan and a different direction in America, but then like even those kind of like bounce back and forth between each other. Um, 
Yeah, anyway. I, love, I love this stuff. <laughs> I love going through the genealogies of things. It's not at all linear. And it's continuing right now, obviously. Right, I mean, right. how many well, American... Pacific Rim we mentioned, yeah. you know, the new Godzilla remakes constantly, which are all mm-hmm. bad for some reason, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. All yeah, right. That's, so that's that's cool. I, there's another thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, It's sort please. of related. To, uh, so I wanted to spend a, a little time just to kind of... So we've mentioned several times the incredible literary tradition of Japan. I wanted to kind of go into that a little. Um, oh, there's a lot because I know almost nothing about this. So I'm very yeah. So I so want to listen as much as <laughs> any of our listeners. Yeah. I'm sure. So so um, you know uh, I studied Chinese literature uh, in college, <laughs> so I know a little less about Japanese literature, but I know something, and so I'll try to go over a little just to give a sense of you know when you read something like. Um, What's a you know a classic American sci-fi story like Foundation or something like that? When you read the right. Foundation st- series or any of the ma- major fan, you know Starship Troopers, whatever, behind the scenes, you know, as an American, as somebody that grew up in America or that speaks English, th- there will be this sort of set of English language stories that you'll have heard in your life that the author of the sci-fi book has also heard that mm-hmm. will be kind of playing out behind the scenes, occasionally referenced explicitly, but mostly just kind of forming this kind of substrate on which is built whatever the actual story that you're interacting with is the same happens everywhere else too it happens in japan it happens in china it happens in india it happens in russia it happens everywhere so in japan some of the things that might form that substrate for a story like um uh 10 billion days and 100 billion nights is uh, i'll just go through a few of them so there's a, a large number of um Indo-Buddhist chronicles or sutras that um, Mm -hmm. would be familiar in one form or another to somebody like Mitsusei Ryu, the author of this book, um, you know, through his literary education. Um, So an example of one of these would be uh, one that I'm more familiar familiar with uh, from China, which is called, uh, occasionally called Mulian Jiomu, or it's um, the tale of Mulian rescuing his mother from hell. Um, this is a piece, uh, it's, it's a sutra is, is, can be a lot of different things. Um, it's the word sutra just means like religious text or, or like religious orthodox text or something like that. Um, of course it is associated with specific sutras like the Lotus Sutra or the Heart Sutra, Heart Sutra Mm -hmm. or or what have you, but, um, which are more poems than anything else. Yeah. Often that word sutra is associated with those specific examples of it. But in fact, there are lots of different kinds of them and, Mm -hmm. and they've existed in lots of different forms in Chinese and in Japanese, the kanji or the, or the character that you use to describe that word is a, is a character that, um, in other contexts just means like classic or, um, like classic of literature or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so it can be a lot of different things, in fact. And so, you know, one of the things you get in these in these chronicles or sutras is you get um, stories that are like myths, basically. Uh, so imagine, you know, something uh, akin to like a tale of King Arthur. Um, you know, it's a it's a, a mythical story with a moral, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it'll it's almost like or or a tale from the Bible, maybe is a better example. You know what I mean? There's all these stories in the Bible that. Um, you know, you could imagine a kind of non-moral version of the same story, or you can, the story itself is a kind of a, a, a simple plot, but it's, it's meant to be, you know, freighted with this religious significance. But at the same time, it's, it also is just a story. Anyway, 
So this there's an example that would be Mulian rescues his mother from hell. It's a story of this uh, young man who travels to hell to rescue his mother. And he goes through all these different it's like Dante, Dante's Inferno. You know, he's mm-hmm. traveling literally through hell and, and meeting all these different kinds of demon and monster, it's seeing all these different kinds of terrible things, getting into trouble, talking his way out of it, and eventually rescuing his mother. Mm-hmm. Now, that kind of, you know, I don't know that for sure that that was an influence on on Misa Seiryu. I sort of doubt that that particular story was, but stories like that, stories of um, characters from um, ancient Indian folklore or ancient Chinese or Japanese folklore, uh, would definitely be familiar with him. Uh, uh, specific Japanese examples of of, of, of stories um, that might be familiar with him would be like the tale of the bamboo cutter. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a Japanese myth. It's really, really famous. It's a myth that occasionally people will say is sort of like proto-sci-fi, because it's a story of a, a young woman who um, is uh, from the moon, who is mm. sent to earth to be raised by a human couple and eventually taken back by this like um host of like lunar beings to the moon where in some versions of the story there she has like further adventures on the moon <laughs> and you know this is like an ancient tale hundreds and hundreds of years old right it, it that would definitely be familiar to meets to would definitely be familiar with that um and there's lots of different versions of it. Another story from the Japanese context would be the story of Urashima Taro. Um, this is a story of uh, a man who um, is, he finds himself trapped in this village of spirits. Not trapped. Uh, in the version that I've read, he goes to a village nearby. He's a, he's a simple fisherman. He saves... Um, uh, an animal i think it's a crane or he doesn't know it's a crane yet he might discover it's a crane later or i don't know i don't remember exactly but he saves an animal and his the animal turns into a beautiful woman and takes him to her village where he then spends a thousand years <laughs> and <laughs> and then he and then you know he tries to go back to his home village after the thousand years has passed and he of course no one recognizes him but they've heard the tale of urashima taro <laughs> <laughs> so it's like it's like meta it's like epic scope of history it's like weird magic or or something um, and then mm. at the very end of course in some in the version i read he turns into a crane himself and and flies away to join the other spirits <laughs> so okay so these are i could kind of describe a lot of other types of stories but these is just to give you a flavor of the kinds of like myths or like very old stories that would be familiar there are also there's another kind of category of stories that would be like more recent like maybe pre-modern stories stories that were mm-hmm. written written for the first time in the last few hundred years um written as novels because they're recent enough they're written as things that are more or less in a format that we would, we would recognize right um, and also and, like uh, to be published is probably a lot of that yeah exactly exactly written to be published to make money um and there's one uh really interesting example of, uh, of a book like this. It's an epic novel called The Hakenden. Um, the full title is Nanso Satomi Hakenden. And it's, um, you could translate it as like the eight dog chronicles or like the tale of the eight dogs. It's a um, 106 volume novel series. 
<laughs> published over a period of 30 years about um, this like group of warriors who are also dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like this, it's like a whole epic cycle, right? Like it's, in, it's huge. It contains lots of stories of magic and adventure. It was published in Japan in the early 1800s and it was enormously influential in Japan. And like people outside of Japan have generally not heard about it. But in Japan, mm-hmm. it's almost like Lord of the Rings. Um, maybe not quite at that level because it's a little too old. And so you can't, it's difficult to read it in the original at this point because the language is a little removed from modern Japanese, but Mm -hmm. nonetheless, it's very familiar to Japanese people. Um, and it's been like remade in a lot of different cases and there has never been a complete English translation, which is wild. That's, isn't that wild? I mean, wild, but also like 108 volumes. Okay, I can see how that yeah. would be, you know, difficult to to do yeah. too. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say one more thing about it. It's based on a lot of things, but one of the things it's based on is a very famous Chinese novel from a few hundred years or before that called The Water Margin, mm-hmm. um, which is the kind of picaresque tale of a bunch of different outlaw warriors um, on the margins of, uh, of imperial society. Right. Anyway, so... This is just to give you just like a tiny sense of like some of the stuff that's forming the like kind of underground, but but like, you know, beneath um, beneath the story. Like, you know, I, I could like go on and on. to yeah. to it and the literary yeah, foundations yeah, yeah. of it. Yeah, I, I've actually left some stuff out of my notes here because I know I could go on about this too much. <laughs> but like, you know, we'll, we'll leave it at that. And if you have any kind of questions or comments or you want to hear more about that sort of thing, you can let us know or... Yeah. Um, yeah, if you, know. you email us, I'll make sure it gets to Matt and we can we can talk about specific questions on the next episode. Sure. Uh, spectologypod at gmail.com. But um, I'm curious just right now, Matt, just sort of like, you know, you've mentioned a lot of these different things. Um, are, are there any like particular ways that you're thinking of on like how they might be like, like how to make this a little bit use, more useful for our listeners? Like what are some specific things that they can actually look for oh, in yeah. this novel while they're reading it? Everything that is about the Buddha will have a specific, will be a reference to a Buddha story that Misuseiryu has heard. Um, there's a corpus of Buddha stories called Jatakas. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's a, I think a Pali word. Um, and it just, it refers to the, it refers to a story of the life of the Buddha. Now, obviously the Buddha has had many lives. So some of his lives, he's an animal. Some of them, he's a person. Some of mm-hmm. them, he's something else entirely. And, you know, there's all kinds of different tales about his life that, that will, you know, have echoes in this story like for instance there's there's a, a well-known story about the buddha's life where he's a monkey and mm. in the and this is echoes with the hanuman legends in india as well but in the story in one of the stories where the buddha is a monkey he um in his monkey form he goes on adventures and uh, encounters different kinds of peril and, and so forth um the whole idea of writing a story featuring major religious figures relates to the the notion of a jataka it's right yeah and then of right. course the specific events may also have specific um i, I have not like read every jataka there's like a gajillion of <laughs> I them mean, yeah i've only read a few but <laughs> well and you know i think it's interesting yeah i know a little bit about this just from my own buddhist studies and you know 
it's interesting like we've talked a lot about like how like oh how has this book influenced american anglo what english etc just european general science fiction Ba- that back and forth, what's the back and forth of like American or, you know, kind of Western science fiction and Eastern science fiction generally. But then there's also, you know, for, for all this stuff where we're talking about this kind of like cultural transmission between these two entities, mm-hmm. you know, take that, multiply it by like, you know, 3000 years and you get the, you know, and spread it across just Asia and you get the transmission of like the various like Buddhist texts and stories across Asia for, you know, since mm-hmm. like, you know what 500 bc when when kind of like you know buddhism was born in in the the in, i guess what's now nepal um but you know you get this you get a lot of this like you know ancient indian figures showing up in like japanese texts in like the 1600s right you get a lot of this sort of like you know these various uh stories that get told that get retold that you know i mean buddhism was transmitted from india into china and then from china into japan Mm -hmm. um india or buddhism was also transmitted from india into you know cambodia and thailand and then like further down uh those are different kinds of buddhism buddhism was also transmitted into china and tibet and that's like yet a third kind of buddhism and these buddhisms interact with each other in different ways um and the stories that, you know, like underlie any given Buddhism might be slightly different. They might have different versions of the same stories. Um, you know, there's no Bible in Buddhism in the way that there is in, in you know, in, in like kind of all Christianity, even though there are very different kinds of Christianity, except for Mormonism, share essentially the same Bible share essentially the same agreed upon set of like gospels and new Testament stories. Uh, that's not true in Buddhism. Um, and so, you know, as we talk about this kind of like transmission back and forth, you can also talk about the same thing of a lot of these, like, you know, underlying religious, but not just religious stories. I mean, like these, these Buddhist stories were also entertainment, um, you know, the, especially the stories of like Buddha as a monkey are like meant to be fun and entertaining as well as tell a story, um, as mm-hmm. well as give a moral. Uh, you know, it's a different kind of like religious storytelling tra- tradition. And I think, you know, particularly the the relationship with uh, Dante's Inferno is kind of an interesting one just because like Dante's Inferno is one of these things where it's like, oh, it's actually like a novel meant for popular consumption Mm -hmm. that also like gave us most of like the way we think about hell has a lot more Mm -hmm. to do with Dante than with what's in the Bible per se. Um, The idea of it being like red and smoky and like demons with pointy ears and that kind of stuff. That's Dante. That's not the Bible. (laughs) Like brimstone is yellow, not red. Why is red the like major color we think (laughs) of? It's because of Dante. Um, And so I don't don't know. That kind of stuff is is always really fascinating to me. And I think, you know, we're, we're thinking about that, like for whatever we're talking about, like, oh, you know, there's this kind of like transmission between. Um, I use the, I keep using the word transmission because of the like Buddhist thing, but you know, there's this communication between like Eastern and Western literature. You also have to remember that like, oh, there have been like thousands of years of that same kind of cultural transmission between the various, like very different cultures in East Asia. Um, you very, very different cultures, you know, like Indian culture is not Japanese culture. They're very different yet. They have this like, you know, kind of like shared back and forth history of storytelling that they've, they've developed with each other. 
Yeah. So um, that totally reminds me of something I forgot about the tale of the bamboo cutter, which is that, so the tale of the bamboo cutter is about the uh, woman who's from the moon, um, the princess who's from the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from about a th- the version that is most familiar to most Japanese people is from about a thousand years ago. Um, but the, the story itself is much older and there's some evidence people kind of researchers have like investigated this a little, there's some evidence that it comes from, uh, that, or that there's a, a very similar story, uh, in this, uh, Chinese book of Tibetan stories. Hmm. Um, and so like there might be some sort of folkloric relationship between a Tibetan story from like much earlier and or at least from earlier and and uh, that's that same story and that would make sense because there was um japanese interaction between there was interaction between japanese people in the like 600s and 700s and the chinese empire and so you Mm -hmm. you could imagine a story traveling by that means into japan so it's possible that it has a relationship like that i don't know if that's true and i don't know if anyone knows right no it's cool though i mean it's you know uh, I guess part of what I'm saying, I think what you're saying too, is just like, it's, you know, worth remembering that like, you know, it's easy to kind of exoticize this and be like, Oh, this cool, totally different Japanese tradition. But it's like, Oh no, it's, you know, it's part of its own history. It's part of its own, yeah. you know, frankly, longer history than European history. Um, you know, and a longer, like, especially literary tradition, um, than European literary traditions. And like, you know, like I just kind of remember that, that it's like in dialogue with its own things as well. Um, yeah. And it was cool. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm really looking forward to finishing this book, talking about it uh, in depth and really getting to kind of play, play with the, you know, themes and characters. I mean, so far it's a very like theme heavy book, so it'll go very well with what we uh-huh. tend to do, <laughs> you know, talk for hours about like, what does it mean? Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I guess the last thing we have on our notes, which is just the sort of like, you know, the one thing I wanted to bring up just again, which is that when I, you know, the first time I read the novel, like the, the it, it's, it's very different and each chapter might be very different from the last chapter. And so don't it, like reading the first chapter isn't actually a really good like you know there's some novels where it's like okay you really didn't like what they were doing right at the beginning you're probably not gonna like the whole thing this is not one of those novels if you don't like what it's doing and kind of the preface like wait to chapter two or three give it give it a chance because it like really changes up what it's doing and it goes from being like not really a story to actually a story with recognizable characters and other stuff. And, you know, normally I wouldn't say this, it might be kind of spoilery, but I think it's actually worth mentioning in this point, just because of the, like the, it's worthy context of, of what you're starting with word. Cool. So, um, I think that's it for us. It's fucking late and I want to go to bed. So <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta get the energy we need to yeah. read more science fiction, read more sci-fi. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, you know, Matt, very nice to have you back on the podcast. I'm, nice to I'm be glad back. that we got to, that we're getting to read this book. I mean, I haven't finished it yet, obviously. Um, yeah, I'm glad that we're reading this together and, you know, thanks for recommending it to me and getting me to actually like stick with it one of these times. 
Um, you know, thanks also to WJ, uh, who does our music, which you're listening to right now. He's WJ on SoundCloud. Uh, Noah Bradley, noahbradley.com. He does our kind of like cover artwork. Um, you can find prints of his there. It's pretty cool, spacey shit. Um, you can talk to us. Uh, we are at Spectology Pod on Twitter or SpectologyPod at gmail.com. Those are kind of the main ways to interact with us. Um, always love hearing from people, you know, whether it's like, you know, calling us out something we got wrong, suggesting like new stuff for us that we might like based on these conversations, you know, the, the whole gamut, asking questions, etc. Um, in the show notes, we should have links to most of the stuff that we discuss. You know, I obviously haven't written them yet, so I'll do my best when I do. Um, yeah, and we will be back. Uh, we'll probably have some bonus episode this month. Um, we're, ho- we're trying to schedule with a guest. Uh, and then we will be back in the end of the month to talk about the book more. Um, and then do another one and do another one until, you know, the seas rise and fall and the, you know, sun swallows the earth. And then we won't be doing podcasts anymore. I'm just going to do it until Japan sinks. <laughs> That's when I stop. All right. Well, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully that won't be anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I seriously hope not. Right. Hopefully not while you're there. Um, cool. <laughs> well, you know, thanks again, Matt. I'll talk to you soon. Peace out. Bye.